Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Bardflies, a podcast about royal affairs, political marriages, and couples who have been together too long to ever think about splitting up. This week, Shakespeare brings us back to the ancient world to check in on how things went for Mark Antony once he shacked up with the Queen of Egypt. I'm James Smith. And I'm Will Quinn. This is episode 32, The Benialed. Antony, the love you followed is here. To be had upon payment of an empire. Without you, Antony. This is not a world I want to live in, much less conquer. Because for me, there would be no love anywhere. Do you want me to die with you? I will. Would you want me to live with you? Whatever you choose. Will, would you be so kind as to give us a plot summary of Antony and Cleopatra? The plot summary may not be kind at all, but I would be happy to deliver one to you, my friend. In the wake of Julius Caesar's assassination, as devoted Bardflies listeners will recall from the play Julius Caesar, Brutus and the civil war that followed have come to uh, ignoble ends for them and very good ends for the triumphant Octavius Caesar, Lepidus, and Mark Antony, who are now governing the Roman Republic as a triumvirate. But since this is a tragedy, after all, dark clouds linger on the horizon of Antony and Cleopatra. The main problem appears to lie in Antony himself, the formerly ambitious general who has now moved to Egypt to enjoy the spoils of victory in a tempestuous affair with the jealous queen Cleopatra. Caesar and his men are appalled by Antony's descent into decadence, especially since they worry about the rise of the rebellious Pompey, a noble with an unmatched fleet who is poised to forge an alliance with pirates across the Mediterranean. As Antony and Cleopatra lounge on the Nile, presumably being fed grapes and fanned by servants while drifting on a pleasure yacht, he learns that Rome's security in his position is much more perilous than he thought. Antony's own life has rebelled against Caesar and subsequently died, an event that spurs him to finally return to Rome to meet with his partners in power, despite Cleopatra's anguished protests and the prophecies of a soothsayer who tells us that the Republic's premier power couple is on the verge of explosion. Back in Italy, Pompey assesses his options, given that he is superior at sea but inferior on the land, where a returned Antony excels as a commander. At the same time, Caesar and Antony bicker over Antony's inability to control his late wife. Eventually, one of Caesar's men proposes a way to reconcile the two, marrying Caesar's beloved sister Octavia to Antony. The crisis with Pompey seemingly subsides after successful peace negotiations, and Antony and Octavia wed. But the groom's thoughts quickly stray to Egypt, even though Cleopatra is not especially eager to welcome Antony back, having learned of his infidelity from a messenger whom she almost kills for delivering the bad news. Antony goes campaigning for the Republic against the Parthians, seemingly back in his element. But when he becomes outraged as Caesar resumes war with Pompey, he sends Octavia to her brother to mediate. Of course, this is an opportune moment for Antony to head down to Egypt secretly, where he rekindles his relationship with Cleopatra and publicly crowns himself and her the rulers of Egypt and the Eastern Empire. 
Caesar decides to wage war against Antony and Cleopatra after dispatching Pompey's men. Antony, full of ego and against the advice of virtually all of his advisors, decides to challenge Caesar at sea, aided by Cleopatra's navy. The foolishness of his decision is immediately borne out at the Battle of Actium, during which Cleopatra flees and Antony follows. Bitter recriminations between the two follow, after which they reconcile, fall out, and reconcile again. After a challenge to face Caesar in single combat gets derisively rejected, Antony pledges to fight on land this time. His men, and chief advisor Inabarbus, suspect that all will end in tears, and some, including Inabarbus himself, even defect. Despite the poor omens, Antony wins on the first day of battle, only for the Egyptian fleet to surrender suddenly on the second day, dashing his hopes of victory. Antony, watching from the shore, blames his lover and threatens to kill her and then himself, to which Cleopatra responds by making a play for Antony's sympathy. She locks herself in her monument in Alexandria and sends news of her feigned suicide to Antony via a messenger. This rather Baroque approach to reconciling with your lover fails predictably. Antony takes it very much to heart and fatally stabs himself, though probably not in any vital organs, because he continues to live for several scenes as he gets carried off to see Cleopatra one last time. So, Will, when you say that Antony takes it very much to heart, you mean he literally takes it to heart? Yes, but apparently not fatally. <laughs> but so. not directly in the but heart. But not directly. Uh, not directly. You know, it would have been faster for him, and the play would have been shorter by an act had he actually uh, hit the mark, so to speak. Nonetheless, he dies, as you'd expect. Cleopatra prepares to kill herself to avoid being humiliated by Caesar and his men when Caesar plans his triumphal parade back in Rome. She tries to stab herself, but Caesar's guards stop her. Uh, so she turns to the logical choice, James, which is using a clown to smuggle a poisonous asp to her in a basket full of figs, which she promptly forces to bite her breast. She dies, awaiting Antony in death. And of course, Caesar finally arrives on the scene and offers an ode to the lover's passion before promising them a shared grave. Very romantic, that Caesar. Very romantic. He went from being willing to parade Cleopatra uh, in a, the most humiliating fashion while people mocked her openly in the streets to um, promising her a pretty sweet mausoleum. So take from that what you will. I didn't quite realize this when I was reading the play itself, Will, but uh, your plot summary here has made me realize this is like simultaneously somehow both an episode of the world's most melodramatic soap opera and also like an action movie. Yes, yes. Quite a strange blend here. Yes. Regardless, Will, thank you very much for another fantastic plot summary. As always, you're only getting better and better. <laughs> As our listeners can tell from the various twists and turns and vicissitudes of this plot summary, there's some heavy stuff for us to get to. But before we do, I wanted to start on a, just a little bit of a lighter note, Will. Because, you know, when we read Henry VI Part Three, we talked a little bit about the mechanics of sequels and, like, what makes a sequel work. And when we did The Merry Wives of Windsor, we talked about spin-offs and the idea of creating a, a separate play or a separate movie or a separate book or whatever for a favorite character. And I'm kind of interested in revisiting some of those things with this play because what strikes me is we have here a play that is both historically and in terms of the characters who are who appear 
could be construed as a sequel to Julius Caesar, as you referred to at the very beginning of, of the plot summary. And yet, this play does not feel at all like Julius Caesar in either tone or intent. Mm. So I, I just wanted to start with there with, do we consider this, and, and it's a little bit, therefore, I think, a, more of a macro question than the Henry VI Part Three conversation was, which there we were talking about what makes a sequel work. I think here my question is, do we consider this play to be a sequel? Yeah, well, the tone really is quite different here. We talked a little bit about Julius Caesar as a political thriller, a sort of discourse on government with lots of different philosophies and characters in action. And the debates and you know thinking and pivot points all happen on the stage in Julius Caesar, whereas Antony and Cleopatra, it's more operatic. The language is really central. It's very fraught and uh, emotional. And as you said, actually, it, it has a bit of the sword and sandals kind of epic to mm-hmm. it, you know, action movie, big battle scenes, but also is surprisingly an intimate focus on Antony and Cleopatra's relationship, which is what you'd expect. So it's really a very different kind of play. Antony seems to have changed a lot from his depiction in Julius Caesar and sort of seems to be a different kind of guy at this point. I guess I would say it is a sequel, but it's a sequel in a radically different political and emotional context. Whereas, you know, Julius Caesar is about survival, survival of the Republic, survival of the individual characters and their fates in the wake of Caesar's assassination, the struggle for for power. It's a struggle for power here too, but it's a different kind of power and it's much more... Um, you get the sense it's it's just much more intimate in its scope, if you will. That's kind of my reaction to it. Yeah, I'd say it's a sequel, but it's definitely different in many, many respects. Yeah, I want to... Uh, this is going to sound like a little bit of a, of a cop-out, I think, but I don't think I fully agree with you, Will. I mean, it is a sequel in the obvious sort of superficial sense, right, of you know, you're following some of the same characters through. And one thing that's interesting, I think, that makes it even possible to characterize it as a sequel is that Julius Caesar doesn't truly have a main character. Brutus is, I think, the most featured character. Mm. But Antony, of course, you know, though largely absent from the first half of the play, is very present in the second half of the play. So you could kind of squint and see the two plays working together as being about the rise and fall of Antony, sort of. That being said, I think, you know, one thing we hit on when we were talking about the Henry VI plays was that kind of what we look for, at least in a good sequel, is that you have a single storyline that's carrying forward over multiple episodes. And probably each episode is a self-contained story of its own, but also each episode is serving the larger thematic argument of the multi-part complete work, right? And I would say that the concern, like, yes, there's some similar concerns being dealt with here between Antony Cleopatra and Julius Caesar, but I feel like they are not doing the same thing. They don't seem to be thematically or narratively or polemically, maybe even, you would say. They're, they're not spiritually in the same vein as each other. You said, you know, you described Julius Caesar as a political thriller, and I think that that play is very much concerned with politics, and with not just with politics, but with 
presenting these different ideas about politics and questioning those ideas and setting them up against each other, right? That's here a little bit in this play, but this is much more about a relationship and the impact of that relationship on the people. And the political stuff is there, but it's as the fallout of the relationship more than it is about questioning different ideas about the politics. Does, does that make sense? Does that make sense? I guess here's what I'd say, you know, setting aside the differences in tone, which I think you can make the argument that that's maybe not the most important thing. Cause I, after all, we went from like Richard the second, very poetic, philosophically minded play to Henry the fourth part one, which is definitely a sequel in a sense. Right. Yeah. And is sort of like a fleshy, realistic depiction of court politics. I guess it is a sequel in, in one sense. Yes, there's not a central character that you're really following across these unless you're thinking about the play thematically and historically as a sort of cap on Rome's rise mm-hmm. as an empire, basically. The fall of the Republic, you know, or Republic to dictatorship to anarchy to empire, basically, in some fashion. And in this sense, I guess where I do see, and and maybe this is a cop-out as well, but where I do see some overlap here is I think Julius Caesar is also about people succumbing to their own vices, in a sense, Mm -hmm. you know, either for noble reasons or ignoble reasons and the sort of intermingling of those things. And I think you see somebody like Antony, who, uh, while I think he's quite a villainous character in Julius Caesar in many respects, he sort of acquires pathos here as he succumbs to his own vices and humanity in a way. And in that sense, you get to see how the the situation that emerged from Julius Caesar, which was hinted at in some of the, the conversations in the latter part of that play, how that's not a stable situation and cannot last. And mm-hmm. there needs to be some shift in how Rome is constituted and in which of these characters continue to live, basically. And so in that sense, I do see it as a sequel, despite all of the jarring differences in tone and in style and that's because i think rome is really the central character here at the end of the day even though it's sort of magnified in this person of antony who sort of embodies rome's decadence in the wake of kind of the civil War. right so it's something about it's something about the two plays working in concert to make an argument about the political transformation of Rome. Yes, and it's kind of an argument about what Rome is in a way, right? Because you have Rome itself, the major metropolitan area of of Rome in Italy, right? And then you Mm -hmm. have all of these tributary kingdoms, if you will. And um, there's so much in this play in the language contrasting Egypt and Rome and how Antony is basically, quote unquote, gone native in Egypt, right? Yeah. How he's sort of adopted Egyptian habits, which is to say like decadent Greek tendencies in the view of, views of the Romans because this, the Ptolemaic Greek Egypt that he's inhabiting. But anyway, so you have that struggle and it's a question of who who sort of gets to define not just what Rome is, but where the balance of power lies. And clearly, Antony is interested in the East as an alternate way of ruling and living. And we could go into that and what that contrast means. But yeah, I, I do see this. There is some sort of thematic unity of like what type yeah. of... Yeah, and what type well, of I'm, I'm really interested in getting into this Egypt and Cleopatra versus 
Caesar and Rome and Antony caught in the middle of that. Like, I think, mm. I think that's a great jumping off point for our next topic. But before we get to that, I'm actually very interested in this progression you're talking about with Rome. And that is something that carries through the two plays and kind of unifies them, right? Because we start with Caesar, right? We never see Rome the Republic, right? We start with Caesar. And then we carry forward through the conspiracy. We see the war between the conspirators and Octavius and Antony. Then by the time this play starts, we're in the second triumvirate and the world's been divided up in three. And then it ends with the final victory of Octavius, right? Who is a pretty minor character actually in both plays. I haven't thought about this previously, so I don't have a developed argument about it. But I am interested in in that progression, right, of the dictatorial Caesar to the imperial Augustus mm. and the various twists and turns along that path. Part of my whole argument about why Caesar's the guy that you want in charge, right, mm. when we had that whole conversation, was because it's so obvious that Caesar is the one guy who's holding it all together. You know, it all revolves around him. But it's this very personalist yes. rule, yep. right? And I don't want to say that Octavius isn't like that. I mean, obviously, Octavius is, by the end of Antony and Cleopatra, Octavius for sure is the sine qua non of government, right? Mm -hmm. So it, that's true. But, you know, where Caesar is a general, like an accomplished statesman, an accomplished general, and like a living legend, right? He doth bestride the world like a colossus. Octavius is like a CEO. Mm. There's something very cold and rational about Octavius. And it's, again, I don't have a clear argument about it, but there is an element of this play that feels like it's about the death of a heroic ideal and its replacement, and it's sort of inevitable, necessary replacement by this colder, more rationalist, almost technocratic. Well, approach. right, right. I mean, and I think actually Rome is much better served by ultimately, I mean, it's hard to make the comparison, but I'd say Rome is probably better served by having a person of Augustus's style than maybe even Julius Caesar himself, right? It's certainly built for a different type of longevity. And of course, that involves creating a new legend around Octavian, but you're seeing him at the early part of his career, not in the Imperium, if you will. So that's an interesting point. I do think the death of a heroic ideal and a type of romance and the dangers of personal charisma, I think, are stressed pretty heavily in both plays to a certain yeah. degree, right? I think that's definitely true. Even if you take the view, as you do, that Julius Caesar might be the guy that you really need to run Rome in the play Julius Caesar, he's definitely not presented uncritically, and certainly there's problems associated with that. This is sort of ringing the bell, the death knell of a previous age, you know? This um, is actually, this was a really interesting thing for me in this play, Will, in, in Antony and Cleopatra. There's no question that Antony and Cleopatra, as amazing and compelling characters as they are in this play, especially Cleopatra, I don't think that this play is overflowing with regret about the fall of Antony and Cleopatra, right? I think Shakespeare's pretty clear-eyed in this play that, like, yeah. These guys are in an abusive and dysfunctional relationship, and the ripple effects of that are felt far afield, and like there are a lot of bad downstream effects from that. Yes. And yet, for as clear as the play is about that, nonetheless, you're like, so my alternative is Octavian? And I don't mean that in an incredulous kind of way, but the sort of cold-blooded and calculated nature of Octavius in this play is also not very attractive 
And again, that's not to say that it's not what you need. I'm just saying it's not inspiring. Well, I guess, I don't know. I suppose I view it slightly differently than you do here. I agree that it's not necessarily inspiring in and of itself, but the juxtaposition that keeps getting made or what I keep reading in the play is between duty and honor, which is seen as the Roman sort of ideals, Mm -hmm. and then the Egyptian ideals of, I mean, it's always framed negatively, I think, and that tips some of Shakespeare's hand, but there's this element of Egypt portrayed as this place where people can live a little and humanity is allowed to exist, irrespective of these almost oppressive concepts of duty and honor in the world of the play. And duty and honor sort of flatten Octavius's personality to a certain degree. And, you know, he's obviously a schemer in and of his own right, though he, you know, has some cause to feel wronged. You know, the contrast, to put a fine point on it, is Antony is the one who's run off to Egypt and is making all of these impetuous and rash decisions in a way. Yes, it's felt far afield, but I also think you're meant to see it as it's a tragedy in the sense that it opposes the two sets of ideals, the Roman imperative as somebody like Octavian understands it and his men understand it, which is duty, honor, stability, mm-hmm. and Antony and Cleopatra who are focused on love, passion, sort of indulgence, enjoying the trappings of being rulers. Yeah, and, and I think it's notable, Will, that, uh, look, obviously the play is more complicated than any initial declaration, but I do think it's interesting that the first 10 lines of the play, nay, but this dotage of our generals overflows the measure, et cetera, et cetera, right, is Philo essentially saying that Antony has been corrupted by Egypt and by his love for Cleopatra. That's the very first idea we yeah. get. yeah. Right, is how the, that Egyptian ideal that you're talking about has, has corrupted Antony. Yeah. Well, and I think to your point, both of these ideals, if taken too far, can have sort of negative effects, right? There's a wonderful novel, which I may have mentioned on the podcast before, called Augustus by John Williams. It's an epistolatory novel that sort of tells the story of Augustus's rise to power. Great book, great political novel. But one of the interesting bits of it is to make himself emperor and undisputed ruler, he has to cut off much of his emotional life and really make some cold-blooded, ruthless decisions to instantiate himself in power, which definitely a theme in Shakespeare's other plays that we've read, right? I, I certainly think Henry IV is a great example of this, and even Henry V to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. And the people that go the other route have their own problems associated with them, your sort of Henry VI types, or the people that overdo the ruthless murder fest, Richard III approach. So you you have these different types of vices that flow from these virtues in a way. But to go back to your point, I don't think you're meant to feel terribly sorry for Anthony and Cleopatra through this play. I mean, they're explosive. The amount of scenes where they're just fighting and mm-hmm. bickering amongst themselves and then reconciling is there well let's just put it this way definitely happens as many if not more if if not as many times as elizabeth taylor the great actress in cleopatra you know was married it certainly approaches that there's like at least seven or eight reversals here lots of bickering but it's Mm -hmm. also undeniably charismatic and powerful and very human even if it ranges from being mature deeply tempestuous adult relationship love 
you know, or alternately teenagers that are just yeah. kind of like puppy love that's turned into, you know, rapid dogfight or something like that. Well, Will, I, I agree with you, and I think that's a, a perfect place to pivot away from the political context and away from the sequel question and to the meat of the play, which I think really, you know, the political stuff is important and it's obviously something that Shakespeare is very interested in, but I think the beating heart of this play is the relationship between Antony and Cleopatra and what's going on with those mm-hmm. two characters. So let's talk about that a little bit. I think, and tell me if you don't agree, but I I remember I was reading the play and I was very struck by my impression that this is a kind of relationship that is very new to us in Shakespeare, right? Mm-hmm. Which, I, I mean, maybe the Macbeth-Lady Macbeth relationship is like it, and just because that play is so short and it's like not a focus of Shakespeare's, we don't get the sense of it. But, you know, this is, a, as you said, this is a true romance, This is about a very passionate and tempestuous relationship, but it's between two mature people. It's not like the young love of Romeo and Juliet, right? It's not that love of like, I can't believe that there exists this other person in the world who feels this way about me and I feel that way about him. It's it's not about being carried away by love in that way. Mm -hmm. What occurred to me when I was reading it is this kind of feels like maybe what would have happened to Othello and Desdemona if... Iago hadn't set out to ruin their relationship, right? This kind of feels like the jealous, tempestuous relationship that they might have had 15 years down the line. You know, and and the impression that I very, very strongly got was that these are two people who are absolutely madly and passionately in love with each other. But it's almost not even love. It's like they can't be without each other. And that set of reversals that you keep seeing and that you describe, right, is it feels like a situation where maybe they don't even like each other that much. Yeah, yeah. They have these great differences and they frustrate each other, and yet they can't be apart. So I, I don't know, how, how did you react to, to their relationship? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think we've both said mature, and I'm, I actually want to unpack that a bit. In some ways, this is like, crazy, tempestuous, almost teenage, the world is kind of reduced to just their feelings for one another. And that happens time and time again. And you can really see just how magnetic these two characters are to each other and also Mm -hmm. to the people around them. There's that wonderful Anabarbus speech when he first sees Cleopatra arriving on her barge down the Nile. And it's just a tremendous, tremendous speech. So you can see the total... This is the barge, right? The barge, yeah. The barge she sat in like a burnished throne, burned on the water. The poop was beaten gold, purple the sails, and so perfumed that the winds were lovesick with them. The oars was silver, which to the tune of flutes kept stroke and made the water which they beat to follow faster as amorous of their strokes. For her own person, (laughs) it beggared all description. She did lie in her pavilion, cloth of gold of tissue, or picturing that Venus where we see the fancy outwork nature. On each side her stood pretty dimpled boys like smiling cupids with divers coloured fans whose wind it seemed to glow the delicate cheeks which they did cool and what they undid did 
So just un unbelievably powerful and magnetic and charismatic. And in that sense, this almost reads to me, and of course, it, maybe, it, maybe it should read this way since it's kind of actually what's going on. This strikes me with all of the sort of awfulness and attendant damage. Antony is like the middle-aged man who has an affair with... Maybe it's not necessarily a much younger woman, but is willing to basically torch and blow up his entire life for a lost weekend of passion, basically. That's sort of what it reads like to me, but it's almost as if it's extended well, uh, well so beyond one, that, you know? Something that's fascinating about it to me is, I think you're right, except one thing that's complicating about it is that Antony seems to be aware of Cleopatra's power over him, right? It, it's It's not like he is guilelessly caught, mm -hmm. right? It, it's like he's he's trapped and he knows that he's trapped. It, it doesn't strike me as something where Antony is unaware of what's mm -hmm. going on. You, you remember there's the moment where they have the battle and Cleopatra sort of runs away and Antony follows yes. her? Yes, And this causes him to lose the battle. And Cleopatra afterward says, I little thought you would have followed. And Antony responds, Thou knewst too well my heart was to thy rudder tied by the strings, and thou shouldst tow me after. Or my spirit, thy full supremacy, thou knewst, and that thy back might from the bidding of the gods command me. It's not just that he is in love with her and he's therefore acting irrationally. It's also that he's self-aware about that fact. That I think yeah. is what marks it out as different than some of these other relationships that we've seen. Well, like, I don't very, think Othello yeah. ever had this level of self-awareness about it. Yes. Well, they're also very codependent in a way that I don't think is quite as true of some of the other relationships that we've seen. Mm -hmm. Cleopatra is more of a fully formed character than Desdemona, right? And I think that's one of the interesting things here. It's not just that these are maybe older... Uh, people. I'll differ from you just very slightly. I think Desdemona is actually a, a pretty well-formulated character. I think that Cleopatra is a much more complex character. Okay, well-formulated, but I wouldn't say complex. Yeah, so I, I think that's fair. I guess the point that I was going to make is just that Desdemona sort of exists to be acted Angelic. upon. And she's she's be... just an, she's like sort of an epitome of goodness. Yes, yeah, exactly. And as a result of that, right, Desdemona's relationship with Othello while it can evoke tremendous pathos because of her goodness and because she really hasn't done anything wrong, it's not terribly complex, and she exists to be an object through which these machinations right. are yes. worked on Othello, right? Whereas Cleopatra and Antony, you get both sides of their feelings of betrayal, their feeling of interdependence, down to the point of life not really being worth living, despite the fact that they may not even like each other very much in the final analysis, and there's clearly extremely little trust in their relationship. Yeah, they both basically believe that the other is cheating on them or going to cheat on them. Constantly. 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 Yeah, even to the point where they're willing to potentially betray one another where the results will very likely be their death, right? Yeah. I mean, Antony immediately, when he feels like Cleopatra has betrayed him at the battle, is swearing that he'll kill her and then he'll kill himself, right? And, yeah. and it just provokes a series of increasingly crazy one-upsmanship on the part of both parties. And I think that's because they're almost grotesquely interdependent upon one mm -hmm. another in a really toxic way. But it makes for compelling viewing, I will say that much. You get both, right? You you get the sense of their 
distrust and almost dislike of each other, even at the same time that you get the sense of their overwhelming love and attraction to each other, right? Yeah. I mean, one thing that's interesting to me that, that I'm, as we're having this conversation, that I'm wondering is I do find there to be immense pathos in the play mm-hmm. and in their ultimate falls. And I find that interesting because I don't know that I think that either of these characters are particularly noble. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested, what is it that makes it work even though these characters are... You know, if, if you're not reading the play, but you're reading the plot summary, right? Like, I made that joke about it being a soap opera. I think that if you look at it superficially, or you don't read the play, or you don't go too in, too deep on it, you can be like, well, what is what is the pathos of the fall of these narcissists, right? There's a sense that Cleopatra, like, she likes to ensnare men, right? Mm-hmm. That's sort of something that she gets some level of self-actualization from, right? right? That's not a very attractive thing. And yet, she's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, here's my wager on that. I think where the pathos in this one comes from, so we talked a lot about passion in Othello, and I think that's very true, and jealousy, which courses through both of these plays. I think what's interesting about Antony and Cleopatra is, though jealousy is obviously part and parcel of the play and a central driver of the action at various points, Really, this play is about passion and passion to the point, not just of almost uh, narcissism, but a sort of solipsism where the world is almost rendered meaningless compared to the feelings of these two people. It's almost um, that great line from Casablanca uh, about the feelings of two people not amounting to a hill of beans in this world. But it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Well, this is like as if Elsa and Rick said, yeah, actually, you know what? The liberation of Czechoslovakia and the continuation of the French resistance and so forth, that's not actually all that important. Let's stay and maybe uh, make a play to run the criminal underworld of Casablanca, (laughs) if you will, right? And it's like, oh yeah, no, peace, we're good. We're not going to have a tearful farewell or anything. There's not going to be any self-abnegation here. It's this overriding passion that is consuming and ultimately, you know, self-destructive and and destructive in the world. But sometimes it seems like life can be like that. Some people are willing to throw things away for personal feelings. And in that sense, that depiction of passion, I think, is really interesting because it almost defies political logic to a point. I mean, we can talk Mm -hmm. about how much Cleopatra has designs in and of herself, and you can definitely play her that way. But there's almost this element that transcends any type of um, real logic. And I think people that uh, have been in love or have watched others fall head over heels, it makes people do some pretty crazy things sometimes. And I guess in that sense, that's the evocation of pathos. Like, what is it like to fall in love with the most beautiful woman in the world and the most accomplished man in the world? And... um, have the two of them willing to throw it all away on something that just seems crazy. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's where I see the pathos and interest in this one coming in. And that's what I think the play is obsessed by in a lot of the speeches. I would also say, I think I agree with all of that. And I would add an element to it though, right? Which we talked about Antony's self-awareness of being entrapped by this love for Cleopatra, right? And I think actually that's part of, for me, the pathos as well is how true these characters are to themselves mm-hmm. where they know what they are. I don't think Cleopatra has any illusions about being a virtuous and upright woman in that yeah. sense. Right. I think Cleopatra knows who she is and 
the commitment, the willingness to be able to say, I refuse to be, what is it that Antony said, actually? When Antony has been defeated by Octavius, and Octavius sends a messenger, basically, and, and is telling him to submit, essentially, Antony replies, Get thee back to Caesar, tell him thy entertainment. Look, thou say, he makes me angry with him, for he seems proud and disdainful, harping on what I am. Not what he knew I was. Mm. And I think that that harping on what I am, not what he knew I was, is sort of at the heart of it. To me, for both of these characters, where they have an idea of themselves, and that idea is exploded by like the victory of Octavius, by mm -hmm. their own tempestuous love affair, and the bad decisions they make because of it, by the end of this heroic age or this heroic ideal. But they are so true to that idea with themselves and within themselves that they are willing to go to death and maintain that idea of themselves right. rather than right. submit to this new order. I think maybe to me at least that's part of what it is, is like the heroic ideal may be coming to an end, right? This heroic age may, may be coming to an end, but that doesn't mean that it's going to submit to the new. Yeah, yeah. Well, I also think the terms by which they define their relationship and their passion for one another almost necessitate this kind of end as well. Uh, there's that great speech very early on where Antony says, yes. Let Rome in Tiber melt, and the wide arch of the ranged empire fall. Here is my space. <laughs> Our kingdoms are clay. Our dungy earth alike feeds beast as man. The nobleness of life is to do thus. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, when such a mutual pair and such a twain can do it. And oh, which I dare on pain of punishment, the world to know, we stand up peerless. Excellent falsehood. <laughs> Why, did he marry Fulvia and not love her? I'll seem the fool I am not. Antony will be himself. Oh, but stirred by Cleopatra. <laughs> Where Antony is talking about how he's willing to let it all go, essentially, to have the life that he wants and that kingdoms are really nothing more but malleable vessels when he is bound to his love. And yes, they have political ambitions, but it's all sort of subservient to that. So to have that way blocked, it ends up being... Um, their passion sort of has to come to a sort of violent end, in a sense. I don't know if that makes much sense, as I'm saying it out loud. Yeah, there's an inevitability to it. In the same way that I think it's a little bit the same thing that's powerful to me in Othello, I think, is there's that inevitability, right? That it couldn't end any other way. Um, I think I might throw uh, like a Henry IV one mm. into that equation too, right? Of the Hotspur Falstaff dichotomy ends as it needs to, which is Hotspur getting the death that he always wanted heroically in battle and Falstaff popping up on the battlefield right. saying, give me life. Right. right, exactly. So yeah, I think the way they're defining their terms here, it necessitates, I mean, they're saying everything else is nothing, right? Including the ranges of the empire is nothing compared to their desires and their relationship, which they're going to use to form the world. So, yeah, I think they're setting themselves up for a situation where if their heroic agency cannot be expressed, 
if there's no room and if worse they're going to be paraded and humiliated through rome in the triumphal parade as cleopatra fears then there's nowhere for them to go so it's not just a matter of fearing humiliation it's the sort of realization that um they as individuals cannot subvert and change the course of everything simply by dint of their passion for one another and their commitment to sort of their own ideal well, before we move on to our rankings, and I have a ranking question or, or sort mm. of a, a, a framing question for our rankings today. But before we get there, can we just take a quick moment to talk about the language of this play? Because there, or maybe not even the language, but the tone of the play, which is, mm-hmm. which is so strange to me, or, or maybe not strange, but so it's new. It's somehow new to me in that you know, the two plays that come to mind when I think of it is we talked already about the Othello comparison and then also Richard II, I think you mentioned quickly. Mm-hmm. There is something overwrought and luxurious almost, and I know that's a strange word to use, yeah. but it's the only word that I can think of that fits, to the language and the presentation of this play where it's there's hundreds of entrances and exits, I think. There are just many more scenes than we're used to seeing in a Shakespeare play. And, you know, there's this very hyper-imagistic, very lavish language that both these characters, and especially Cleopatra, but really both of these characters are are speaking. And I think that worked aesthetically to me. I think that's part of what makes the pathos of the play mm-hmm. work. But I wondered if you have had any reaction to that. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting point. I think one of the odd things about this play is that so much is spent on these very articulate statements and sort of deliberations of emotion. But a lot of the action are pivotal points whereby events move in a different direction or where you would normally see a scene to sort of show events changing as opposed to just emotions in the background aren't really there. So you really just are going from great speech to great speech, but the Mm -hmm. obsession of most of these speeches is about the internal emotional states of Antony and Cleopatra and the people who are observing them trying to comment and understand their relationship, right? Yeah. And so that's one of the odd things about this play, and and it definitely affects my understanding of the rankings, but it's an odd juxtaposition of these operatic scenes And then epic battles, right? You can envision Mm -hmm. how they might do the Battle of Actium or some of the land battles here on stage. I mean, this is a huge play. Massive cast, lots of entrances and exits. Uh, It's really, really intense. But on the other hand, there's something that's odd about the juxtaposition of these incredibly operatic speeches about internal emotional states and observations of this couple. And then things just seem to happen, right? Yeah. Like, there's not really much foreshadowing apart from, like, oh, there's a bunch of snakes, Egypt is full of snakes, suicide is sort of lingering in the air as a possibility almost from the jump of the play. Yeah, like, you get this sort of level of whiplash just from how much stuff is happening, right? There's that whole plot with Sextus Pompey mm-hmm. that then just ends or goes away. There's no confrontation. There's these things that happen that don't really feel connected or resolved or introduced, yeah, one of those exactly. three, at least, right? Exactly. I'm reminded, actually, of Henry VI, Part Three, mm-hmm. where there's a ton of battles. I mean, there's just so many battles in that play, and it would probably be very fun to watch it live just for the stagecraft of doing all of those. 
But it's kind of like, oh, there was a battle and the other side's now winning. And oh, there's another right. battle yeah. and the other side's now winning. But there's no logic in the text or in the characterizations about why certain things are happening. I mean, I guess in this sense, you can at least say, oh, there's Cleopatra fleeing with her fleet. There is some of that, but I feel like it's not teed up nearly enough for it to be a coherent story. And you don't really understand the motivations that are driving some of those decisions that lead to reversals and the emotional logic. It's almost like Shakespeare was sitting down with the history Mm -hmm. and wanted to plot out the history and events just had to come out the way they did right? because they happened that way, more or less, rather than editorializing on maybe why the character's nature drove them to actually take these actions and what led them to make their decisions. You sort of just deal with the fallout as you move from event to event. So I think, Will, that what you just said, that's a, a great place for me to ask this sort of overarching question that I I think will drive some of our rankings conversation, which is what do you think Shakespeare wants us to get out of this play? Like, is there a thesis here? You know, it's a, it's a good question. I guess I'd say love is a hell of a drug, but beyond that, we talked about the passing of the heroic age. I would add to that a sort of passing of, um, it's not really the passing of this Egyptian ideal per se, but the recognition that even a heroic and accomplished person, if they forsake duty and a more dispassionate approach to power, is doomed to come to a sort of, if not ignominious, definitely violent and tragic end. And I think Mm -hmm. that's the story, is that love doesn't necessarily conquer all in the final analysis when you come up against power. And sometimes love can be very integral to your own undoing if you put it above all other forms of duty and respect. So that's sort of the way I would interpret it. You arrived, I think, basically the same place that I did, where I was going through earlier and just highlighting the, the passages that I thought were important in the play. And one line jumped out to me that I, I missed my first time through, which is this minor character, Menocrates, says, We ignorant of ourselves beg often our own harms, which the wise powers deny us for our good. And that leaped out to me as the key for what the central argument of the play is, right? Is is the sort of self-destructive behavior engendered by our desires. Mm. And I don't know, again, like, I don't know that the ultimate resolution, like, I don't know that you really want Octavius that much. Like, I don't know that that's (laughs) so much better, but it does feel like it's probably going to result in a better outcome than... Anthony and Cleopatra with this tempestuous relationship, making decisions based on what the other person is doing or not doing in, in the moment, right? Yeah. So, Will, with all that said, how do you rank it? So, this is an interesting one to rank. Ultimately, I find as beautiful as a lot of the language and some of the characterizations are, I have to put this one lower down for the reasons I talked about earlier. The scanty connective tissue and sometimes logic. I I don't think it's got quite as much exploration of why things happen and the connection of the thematic ideas to some of the specific events that happen in the course of the play. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to put it actually at number 17, my new number 17, and that's below Love's Labor's Lost and above Measure for Measure. So I feel pretty comfortable with that. This is a good one, but it's middle of the pack. I think it's less than the sum of its parts, even though 
it has some really amazingly written bits in it and explores themes that are interesting, but I just don't think it quite comes alive in the way some of the other plays that we've... Maybe not comes alive. It's definitely alive. It's definitely interesting to read. It'll be interesting to watch when I get to see it in in a theater or watch an adaptation. But it's Mm -hmm. just... It doesn't quite hang together with the same type of unity and strength that I think some of the other plays that we've read you know, have to include your favorite play, James, Love's Labor's Lost, which is above this in my ranking, even though it's below uh, uh, measure for measure. Uh, it's it's solidly in the middle of the pack for me. What about you? I'm having a little bit of the same conundrum, and it's definitely not in my top 10. I think, I would say when I, like, when I read it through first, I was like, this feels like a bit of a mess. There's too much going on. Like, there's definitely a pathos, but it's really not all working. Mm-hmm. And as I was going through it again, just highlighting things that jumped out at me, I felt better about it. So I have a better overall feeling about it than I think my initial reaction would have pointed me towards. But I agree with you. There's some real weaknesses to it. It's, you know, it's messy. There's amazing stuff in it. I think Cleopatra is a truly remarkable character. All that being said, it can't make it into my top tier here. And I'm it's gonna fall somewhere in the like below much do about nothing and above Troilus and Cressida, somewhere in like mm. the twelve to sixteen realm. And I'm I'm just not quite sure where. And and part of the reason I think is that maybe I have maybe in that section the rankings are a little confused. I'm looking at it, I'm like, well, I think I liked it more than Midsummer Night's Dream, but not as much as Henry VI Part Two. Mm-hmm. I think it's gonna fall at number four. 15 for me it's gonna go below henry the sixth part two and above richard the second okay got it and i'm not a thousand percent i think it could you know it it could fall a a little bit above or a little bit below that but it for me it's basically exactly in the middle of the pack and i will say about that will i think that reflects part of it i'm looking at you know i'm looking at my top 10 to 15 plays here there's some i mean first of all top 10 plays of Shakespeare is just stone cold classics (laughs) classics my god and then you know you get into you know I have King Lear as my number 12 play that Midsummer Night's Dream 13 I mean I think part of what I'm reacting to is like I think Anthony Cleopatra is actually a very very good play you know on a a further thinking about it and it just can't compare to some of these real masterpieces there's definitely a little bit of the sublimity of some of these other works by comparison, you know, a play like Antony and Cleopatra, which has great stuff in it, and depending on how it's staged and sort of edited, could be one of the top ones for sure, if you mm-hmm. see it played live. I just think it can't help but compare slightly negatively to the uppermost tier of the greatest playwright and possibly the greatest writer, James, in the English language. Perhaps so, of all languages. Perhaps, of, perhaps. I don't know if you know perhaps. that Hamlet is the only thing that ever needs to have been written. Uh, yes, well, yeah, but, yeah, uh, right, right. With all that said, my MVP for this one is Cleopatra. I think there are a couple of other characters. I mean, you know, Antony, of course. I think there's even an argument for Enobarbus, yes, who we didn't yeah. really talk about here. But to me, Cleopatra is just a fascinating, complicated, difficult challenging character and and one of the if not the most complex female character we've seen in Shakespeare is very close to that so she's yeah, my MVP yeah I have to agree and give Cleopatra my MVP for this one as well and then will 
Do you have a recommendation for our listeners this week? Yes, I do, James. So I have been revisiting one of my favorite novels. I was reflecting on it, and I think it's a top 10 pick for me of novels that I have read in my 30-something years. The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco, which is a delightful medieval murder mystery set in a monastery in Italy. And it's really fantastic. I started listening to it, you know, on Audible while cooking this past week. And it's just fantastic. It's erudite. It's amusing. It's a great murder mystery. It has great discourses on medieval history, on logic and uh, the monastic orders, but it also can get down into basically being a very elevated Sherlock Holmes story, and Mm -hmm. I think it's tremendously playful and fun. And I believe it's actually also been made into a recent miniseries starring John Turturro, and of course a a classic adaptation with Sean Connery and Christian Slater, among other people, including F. Murray Abraham that was made in the 80s. So highly recommend that book. It's, It's a great, great read. Give us the name of the book one more time, Will. The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco. And that's our show. Next time on Bardflies, our miniature tour of the ancient world continues with Pericles, Prince of Tyre. Will has been extremely excited about doing this play. I can just tease that for you listeners right now. Um, (laughs) If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter and drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.